Thank you to everyone who supports this show and everything that we do at the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. If you are not already, you become you can become a Major Spoilers member by signing up at patreon.com slash major spoilers and getting access to a bunch of other stuff. And if you are currently a patron, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Ashley. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, we go noir with the fade out, continue with the masquerade, fight crime, and are just generally really sort of marvelous. Uh, the Major Spoilers team is here with all the news, the reviews, and important topics to help you love comics, and we do too. So wind your watch, hide the good silver, and for God's sake, keep the leprechauns away from the dog, because the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to issue 886 of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading and checking us out this week. The whole crew is here. Rodrigo, what's going on with you this week? Uh, just reading about vampires, man. Oh, vampires. They're sucking your blood. Uh, mosquitoes are out uh, this time of year as well. Not saying that there's a connection between the two, but uh, I hate vampires as much as I hate mosquitoes. Matthew, how are, how are you this week? He'll eat your dog and he'll shine your shoes. That's what a leprechaun will do. Stay away from the leprechauns. And Ashley. Hi, Ashley. <laughs> Hi. What's going on with you this week? What's going on with Jupiter Jet? Tell people uh, about the, all the Jupiter Jet stuff real quick. Yeah, Jupiter Jet is in preview, so you can order it from your comic book store. You can order it from Amazon. You can order it from jupiterjetcomic.com. That is for volume two, Jupiter Jet and the Forgotten Radio. Uh, so we are in the throes of finishing... Uh, all the back matter and the internal front covers and all those boring production things that nobody thinks about. Uh, and if you are a Kickstarter backer, you uh, have the whole thing right now digitally. So awesome. people are reading it who helped us make the book in the first place, which is so amazing. All right. With all of that out of the way, let us get to some news. So. Square Enix has announced that Spider-Man is going to be added to the Marvel's Avengers video game as a playable character. However, this is the, the important part. If you want to play Spider-Man, you're going to need either a PS4 or a PS5 when those come out in order to do so. Sony has announced that Spider-Man is going to be PlayStation exclusive. So PC and Xbox fans, we're real sorry your mom blew up. And you're asking yourself, is this a terrible conspiracy? Is this something? No, it's just that Sony who makes the PlayStation, has the rights to the Spider-Man character for movies and video games. Uh, Marvel's Avengers, the game, is actually scheduled to arrive September the 4th of this year. Yeah, I was uh, almost interested in this game when they announced <laughs> that Spider-Man was in it. Yeah. And then they started showing footage of Hawkeye, which is like the Renner Hawkeye, and I'm like, nope, back out, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see what else. Oh, uh, they announced the Hellboy RPG, right? So Mantic Games, Dark Horse Comics announced uh, its next Kickstarter will bring Hellboy and the BPRD to your next session with Hellboy, the role-playing game. Uh, the game will be powered, powered through a license of D&D 5th Edition. Uh, Hellboy, the role-playing game, gives players the ability to step in the shoes of a BPRD agent ready to face the forces of evil. And I'm sorry, what a waste to license <laughs> Hellboy to D&D. &D. But let me get back into this. 
Uh, let's see. Uh, ability to step in the shoes of a BPRD agent, ready to face a force of evil. According to Mantic Games, you can become a field research researcher skilled in the study of the occult, a hard-nosed BPRD, security agent, a rookie with a hidden supernatural power, and more. This is not the first time Hellboy has seen an RPG release. Hellboy sourcebook and role-playing game was released under the GURPS system in 2002. Now, the Hellboy RPG Kickstarter will launch late this summer. I, I am curious, Rodrigo, why license uh, D&D 5th Edition? Why not go like Atomic Robo went and did uh, Fate? Uh, we've yep. seen, um, uh, what is it, uh, Powered by the Apocalypse uh, being used in a number of systems. I think Sixth Gun is uh, Powered by the Apocalypse. And of course, Hellboy already had a GURPS release. Um, why? I mean, how hard is it to wrap a, an existing property like Hellboy into Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition rule set? Uh, it's uh, so different systems are harder to use as a as a basis for an adaptation. Uh, power, a lot of games go into powered by the apocalypse because it's very narrative oriented. Like you can say something like, uh, "When this happens, a bad guy shows up." Describe who the bad guy is and what happens. Right? That's your powered by the apocalypse type system, which is very helpful for. Uh, adapting things because that drama is built into the engine for something like D&D you have to contend with the fact that D&D has very specific ways in which it works it's not really meant to do anything except for D&D so you have to do a lot of work to make things work notably i don't know if any of you guys remember but there was a a D20 Star Wars game that mm -hmm, was based mm -hmm. on 3rd edition mechanics and it was nonsense um, so I'm v personally very worried about a, a Hellboy D&D adaptation that is either going to be nothing like Hellboy when you play it because D&D mechanically is so distinct or going to be going to have so many new systems that they might as well have just gone with literally anything else or have made their own system to compensate for the fact that D&D no one to do this. So, in good news for Ashley, during the Disney quarterly call, the mega corporation, that's not a compliment, reversed its previous decision not to release Mulan as for a premium VOD movie. This is due in part to the six and a half million, sub 60, sorry, 60 and a half million subscribers on the service. So, they announced that Mulan will premiere on Disney Plus on September 4th. However, Hold your horses. It's not going to be a free release. Instead, Disney has called it a, quote, premiere access, unquote. And they're going to charge us $29.99 to whoever wants to see it. Uh, this is according to Disney CEO Bob Chappick. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. Uh, who I suspect is an alter ego of Steven Schleicher because he has been advocating for this for a <laughs> long time. And uh, Mr. Chappick said, we find it very interesting to take a premiere offering to consumers at that $29.99 price and learn from it. Uh, noting that they would study the number of transactions and subscribers generated from the movie. And then in those countries that don't yet have access to Disney+, Plus. They claimed that they would be releasing it there theatrically, which actually is a backward version of why I think this is happening, because a lot of other places in the world, it's safe for cinemas to open. It's not safe for cinemas to open in the States. And so we're going to be paying the equivalent of two movie tickets in Los Angeles in order to stream it. But for me, uh, Mulan is the only live action Disney offering to date I've been interested in. So I mm. can't freaking wait. Yeah, I think this is very interesting. I, mean, I know we've talked about this before with uh, some of the other premium VODs 
uh, you know, like New Mutants or uh, what's the uh, the other one that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago that's coming to uh, uh, premium Bill VOD. Ted. Bill and Ted is premium VOD. Uh, you're right. I think a lot of people are going to be looking at this. The thing is. Unlike Universal, unlike Orion Pictures, Disney actually does have the upper hand over the movie studios. Mm. In in the Bill and Ted version, they said, hey, we're going to share some of those box office proceeds. Disney isn't sharing any of this $29.99 with uh, the movie theaters. And the AMC, Regal Cinema, Cinemark, none of those people are going to come forward and say, well, we're going to boycott all Disney movies because that means no Avatar, no Star Wars, no Marvel, no uh, Disney cartoons, none of that stuff. So in this case, Disney has the upper hand. It'll be very interesting. We'll find out probably in about a month or we may have to wait another quarter. But I'm pretty sure that if this goes over well, Disney will be screaming it from the rooftops uh, come September 10th. Uh, I, I'm curious to see how many of those 60.5 million subscribers are ready to plunk down 30 bucks to see Mulan. Uh, speaking of streaming services, Netflix has, has been releasing original content for a couple of years, but going forward, it thinks the real money can be found in franchisers, whether it's something that it comes up with or something that is already made. Now, Netflix recently released the first season of The Witcher with the second and third seasons about to begin production in an interv interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Tindo Nagenta, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, but if not, I'm sorry. The vice president of original films at Netflix said, quote, we're looking at big, broad audiences, PG level adventure films as something that we might be able to get into. Something along the lines of the first Star Wars or the Harry Potter one and two. A lot of family live action fantasy spectacle movies that we think are big and can play great. A Jumanji style story. That is the next frontier. Unquote. What will Netflix come up with? Maybe someone should let Netflix know about Jupiter Jet or the critical hit Void Saga. Hmm? Yeah. Shout out to everybody on Twitter who has tagged me in this. I super appreciate it. Please, if you know someone at Netflix, just buy them a copy of Jupiter <laughs> Jet. I will reimburse you. Uh, this would be that'd be great. Yes, yes, it will. Uh, we did some uh, the new segment a little bit different uh, this week. Did you like it? Want to hear us do more of this in the future? Let us know. Join the conversation about these stories and a whole lot more over on our Discord. You can join the Major Spoilers Discord server for free or link your Patreon account to Discord and get access to even more features at patreon.com slash major spoilers. And now with the news out of the way, let us get to some reviews. I'm going to start off with a book that came out last week that kind of flew under my radar because I totally forgot that it was coming out. It's Pulp from Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. I know this is going to be really weird because we're going to be talking about Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips again later in the show. But their story, Pulp, it's an OGN, came out last week from uh, Image Comics. It's got a $16.99 cover price, although you can get it for less than 15 bucks right now if you get it through Comixology or maybe your comic book shop's got it on, a, on sale. Uh, what this is, is, you know, I'll probably say this again. Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips don't write characters that are perfect. Everybody has flaws and a lot of people have uh, some bad history. Uh, behind their actions. And in this case, we are introduced to Max Winters, who is a pulp writer in 1930s New York. He is writing uh, a lot of Western pulps about this guy called uh, Red Red Ranger, Red Rack, Red Rex, something like that. And he is doing okay. And the stories are full of violence and full of, of good adventure. But this is the 1930s. And he finds out that uh, during the Depression, uh, the pulps are not paying as much as they were previously and so he gets cut down from like five cents a word to like a penny a word and then there's staff writers at this magazine that are basically taking the the stories from max and um and writing their own stories and so he basically loses the ip what we find out is that this old man who's he's really an old man got to be in his 70s old man max winners 
he's actually writing stories about himself and how when he was in the Wild West, he wasn't a hero. He wasn't a good guy. He was somebody that was robbing trains and he was somebody that was robbing stagecoaches and killing people and trying to make off to Mexico to live. And he probably did for a while. But then he uh, had some tragedy in his life and and got uh, blackout drunk for about a decade and then came around, found a new love and is now a writer. But he's getting old. He's had a couple of heart attacks. He wants to leave something to his new wife. And the only way that he can figure out to do it is return to his life of crime. And he's about ready to do it when an old and an old rival. I don't know. There's a Pinkerton detective steps in and says, hey, don't try to rob a uh, don't try to rob a uh, um, armored truck. What you want to do is go rob the Nazis. The American Nazis are doing something here in America. And so Max and this uh, Pinkerton are going to go bust into their into their Bunt house and rob them during a big uh, um, convention that they're having. And then it all goes wrong from there. It is a fantastic little story. It's got great art from Sean Phillips. It's uh, Ed Brubaker's writing as always. It, it has a tragic ending, just like all of, of uh, their, their tales. If you're a fan of criminal, you'll probably like this. It has nothing to do with the criminal universe. Um, it's very, it's very interesting. It is a very neat character study. The biggest problem with this is it feels like it is too short. Had this been released in single issues, I would not have been able to keep up with it because the story moves at a slow enough pace that um, by the, the time the next month's issue would have come out, um, I probably would have not liked it. But it feels like we're getting about three issues or maybe four issues of story in this OGN. I really feel like there needs to be one or two more chapters in this story. Uh, that being said, I really enjoyed this a lot. I thought it was really good. If you're someone who's a big fan of the pulps in 1930s and you like uh, mafia and you like, uh, you know, Nazis getting their comeuppance and you like a little bit of Western thrown in with that and old people basically pulling their one final heist, I think you'll probably enjoy pulp. It's uh, out right now from Image Comics, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. I'm giving it four and a half slices of meatloaf out of five. All right. Comics that are out this week. Oh, no. Let's yeah, Let's do one more comic that came out this week. Other Space. Uh, this isn't actually a comic, Ashley, but it is a uh, original uh, series that is a premiering on Dust. Yeah. Apparently it was a TV show before. Oh, really? Uh, in 2015. Oh, really? Which... Which is cool because, like, I, I I have an uncanny valley for comedy. I only like very specific comedy, so um, it doesn't shock me necessarily that this escaped my purview. But I was surprised to learn that it was part of a streaming service called Yahoo Screen, which I fully never heard of, uh, which maybe explains why I've never heard of this. Uh, this is a Paul Feig joint, and it is basically. I'm going to make a lot of really lazy comparisons between this show and the Orville because it's like, what if Star Trek, but funny though. And it has a lot of cast members in it who I really like. Uh, Karen or Karan, I apologize. Uh, Sony, Neil Casey, Eugene Cordera. Like there's a lot of people in this who, if you are a comedy person, you have seen in like commercials um, or in shorts. I mean, Eugene Cordero is in freaking The Mandalorian, for goodness sake, but uh, and uh, Karan Sony is in Deadpool. There's a lot of very funny people in it, uh, but it does follow that sort of Paul Feig uh, slash Simon Pegg trope of nobody in the show is really good at anything and nobody's really likable. Uh, which, which full disclosure is is not to my taste, but 
this is sci-fi. When it was offered to us as a screener, I said, yeah, I'll watch this. So I feel like if you are into the idea of the Orville and you kind of like the idea that we're dunking on a Star Trek type future or an Expanse type future, there might be something that you're going to get out of this. But um, I didn't I didn't find it very funny. I find the sets look really, really cheap. Uh, everyone's wearing coveralls, which is a perfectly fine spacesuit design to have, but they look like the coveralls that you would get from uh, a farm supply store in the Midwest with some patches from a convention glued on them. And that is the trouble sometimes with streaming shows is that you are restrained by the budget. And if you can't make it charming... And if your genre is going to bear comparisons to other shows that do the same thing and then original source material and, and, and look, new track looks slick AF. It's a, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous new universe. Um, I think it takes away from, from where the joy in this content might be. Because like I say, there's a lot of casting choices here that I think are great. But the protagonist, uh, who is the captain of the ship, got his job through nepotism and then spends the whole pilot fighting with his sister who's also on his ship and wants to be his XO but he won't let her be his XO because it's his sister so he makes his screw up friend the XO and then there's a mutiny and then in the end it all turns out to be the Kobayashi Maru so yeah I just found it really predictable and not as joyful as I would have hoped, which is the Orville is not necessarily to my taste either, but you can tell that the Orville is full of joy uh, and the Orville does have a definite point of view. And perhaps it's because I have not seen the first series. I, I have not seen other space in its previous incarnation, but watching this pilot, I, I just fully don't know where the show goes after the pilot. So I can't in good conscience recommend it to people, which is not to say that if anything I said seems appealing that you shouldn't check it out. Uh, but my hope is that as the show airs, it finds its legs going out. And pilots are really notoriously tough, but uh, this this episode was definitely uh, work to watch, unfortunately. Mm. Unfortunately. Well, I, I've, yeah. embedded, I've embedded the trailer for people that want to check this out. Uh, over in the show notes for this episode, so people can go check that out there. Yeah. Uh, let's look at some comics that are coming out this week. Matthew, what do you got for us this week? I don't have any Milana, uh, but I have a comic that I suddenly went, oh my God, I haven't read this comic in a couple of minutes, and I couldn't find the one that I was going to review this week, but that's okay because it doesn't come out until next week, so I'll do it next week. This week I have Ice Cream Man number 20, written by W. Maxwell Prince, with art by Chris O'Halloran and Martin Morazzo. And, boy, this is a mean, mean, mean little book. When I was a kid, um, my friend's grandmother had an angry junkyard dog. And we all wanted to play with the dog because he seemed like he was really cool. But he always seemed like he was going to chew your arm off. And then you would just, like, you know, bleed out in the street. And it would be ugly and terrible and bad. That is literally what this comic book is. Um, it has been for a oh, better part of three years now. Each issue is something weird. There's one entire issue of this comic that is written as a palindrome, which means that if you read it forward or backwards, it reads exactly the same. There's one that is basically a crossword puzzle. There wow. is an issue. Yeah. There's an issue that is incredibly cruel 
where uh, the main character is uh, an old man who seems to have some issues with losing his memory. Uh, they never say the A word, uh, but it seems like he may have Alzheimer's disease. And throughout the episode, it's played as this weird existential monster movie, but also just this horrible, horrible tale of something entirely real and entirely horrifying. This issue is a parody of not one, not two, but three children's books, uh, starting with a parody of Goodnight Moon called Goodnight You, which I'm not going to go into it. It's very, very, very disturbing. And it ends with goodnight to things that aren't really there. It's it's creeping me out. I'm sitting in a dark room by myself, and it's only the presence of my imaginary internet friends uh, and my dear Ashley that are keeping mm. me from going. Ah. Um, but this is this issue is the ice cream man, who is this recurring character that we know is an eldritch abomination, talking to his kids, and he does a parody of the Giving Tree. And this parody of The Giving Tree uh, basically slides right into consumerism, slides right into late-stage capitalism and the horrors of being old. And somehow you just die in your 40s in an accident on the factory floor, and the specifics of it don't really matter. And you can still hear the trees screaming in the night. And then, then they go after the sacred cow, because the third part of this issue is a Dr. Seuss parody of green eggs and ham called weed laced with Coke. And it's almost a step too far. It is almost so disturbing and so just cynical that it almost crashes the whole premise. And then you read it and they're really trying to channel Dr. Seuss's artwork, and I hate them for being successful. I, uh, this, is a, this is a routine experience for me, getting to the end of an issue of Ice Cream Man with a, a terrible case of the heebie-jeebies and hating them for being successful. Um, this issue, we do find out the story of the Ice Cream Man's wife and children. It is not good. It is, it is not in any way good and there's there's no possible way that that could end well and of course the final page is him you know revealing his regular face looking directly at the reader and saying nighty night and you may never sleep again um so very uncomfortable horrifying comic i hate them i hate them i hate them that said four slices of meatloaf for how successful this book is at channeling that tone at successfully and in in horrible horrible cynical adult ways taking these little bits of childhood literature and turning them into something sinister and awful um i don't recommend this but i do but i don't um so if you're the kind of person who feels like you could read something that would you know if you've, if you've listened to this show, you may have a little idea of where I sit. If you feel like a book that really, really skeeves me out might be right up your alley, you could check out this comic. Again, I will not recommend it to you. I am not going to put that on my karma. So if you read this, you're on your own. 
which is kind of where Ice Cream Man always wants you to be. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to sleep again, if that helps. All right. Well, there you go, Matthew. Enjoy your, your fitful night's sleep as Rodrigo mm. uh, takes us into other nightmares with Vampire the Masquerade. Vampire the Masquerade, number one. Scary stuff, kids. Based on that thing from the 90s. Um, So, uh, as you guys know, I uh, have played a lot of Vampire the Masquerade. um, And it was a lot of fun to play Vampire the Masquerade in the 90s. And now that this new comic, Vampire the Masquerade Number 1, by many people, uh, Tim Seeley, Blake Howard, Def Pramanic, Nathan Gooden, like lots of people worked on this. Um, It makes me ask the question, is Vampire the Masquerade still relevant in... Uh, the year 2020. Well, by the number of people I had to fight off uh, so you could review this comic, I would say, yes, it is. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a, that's an interesting observation, but, uh, and also thank you for doing that. Um, but, uh, Vampire the Masquerade gets by pretty good on nostalgia. It, uh, it's a franchise that was really the first real contender to Dungeons and Dragons as a role-playing game that really expanded the market instead of trying to steal uh, players from D&D. It actually got new people into role-playing. Uh, it's sort of the Wii of uh, role-playing games in that sense, if that uh, makes any sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um so let's talk about this comic. Vampire the Masquerade number one has two stories in it, really a main story and a backup. Uh, the first one is the story of a um, a troubleshooter uh, who is a vampire who works for the local prince. A prince is the ruler of a vampire city. Um, it's a gender-neutral term. So in fact, the prince of... The Twin Cities, which is where this is set, is a lady named Samantha. Um, But um, we kind of follow along with this, you know, basically leg breaker as she uh, cleans up messes uh, for other people. Um, And, you know, as I'm going through this, I'm like, okay, yeah, nothing about this. Like, this comic is very true to the source material, like. Literally, this character has a character sheet in the back of the book. So um, nothing that I see here was like, wait a minute, Bruja don't have drugs. Like, everything's fine. Like, to a certain degree, it's almost working too hard to do that. Like, they spend a lot of time kind of reconciling the vampire, the masquerade, like, 30-year meta plot with why things are happening the way they are now. Um which is, which kind of sucks to a, a slight degree. I was actually hoping that this was going to uh, separate itself from the games and, and be able to be like, okay, well, this is a take on Vampire the Masquerade. It's not, it's very much following that actually very convoluted 30 year evolving history that the game had, which is weirdly 
having played the game, a down, like not a good thing for me. Um, but anyway, as the story of the leg breaker uh, kind of continues, you see her remaining human connections, which is an important theme in Vampire the Masquerade. That's something that made me start to like this story a lot more. Um, and then it finally ends with her meeting a mysterious character and rather than killing her, deciding to help her and showing us that maybe that actually wasn't a good idea. Um, it it kind of leaves me back on neutral. Uh, the art is very good. Uh, all the characters have a design that makes them, makes it easy to tell who they are. Um, there's a lot of blood in this. There's a lot of people getting bled out and like decapitated and stuff. Um, so there's, there's that, if that, uh, and it all looks good in the sense that the art is very good. Um, so again, I'm sort of like, well, do I care about a comic that holds tight to this story so hard? And, but also like, well, I like that they're, they're going into some of the themes of Vampire the Masquerade that are, um, that often actually get left on the table because players just want to like have cool combats and you know have guys in like awesome trench coats which by the way the protagonist of this does wear an awesome trench coat so good job there in in uh channeling that <laughs> that aspect of vampire the masquerade um but uh, it's good to see those human connections and the the backup story um the anarch tales i don't know it might actually be as long just maybe not as many things happen is about um according to the solicitation eventually this is going to be kind of a murder mystery um but it starts out by introducing all of these vampires who all live in the same house which is to me the core of the vampire the masquerade play experience when you play vampire the masquerade you don't play a super powerful like um elder uh, of whatever clan you are you play a grunt that was embraced probably for a very specific purpose and now needs to rely on a on other grunts that were created for whatever reason to survive because um even though they don't know it humans are after you um the other elders are trying to manipulate you to use you against their enemies and so you kind of have to band together with other guys who don't have a lot of power to survive the the long night, as it were. Um, and the Anarch Tale, or what is it? The yep, yeah, the Anarch Tales Part One is that it's a bunch of ba- vampires who have to band together. One of them is a very thin-blooded uh, character, which are vampires that who's who are so not powerful that actually the things that Herd vampires are, are are also less powerful. So here's a character who can be out during the day, and how that plays out with other the other vampires who can't, and and sort of what relationship they end up having. Um, and so that to me really brought up the the experience of the book. Um, I'm going to give it three and a half slices of meatloaf. I'm very interested to see where it goes. Um, although, um, unless unless this first i was not reading issue number one scared them off i would be surprised if i actually managed to uh beat out all the other um major spoilers uh reviewers to review issue number two (laughs) since i'm since i'm usually just like 
scrambling last minute to, to pick up a review. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that the future ages are going to get picked up. So visit majorspoilers.com. If only you knew somebody in reviews. charge of, huh? if only you knew somebody in charge of all of major spoilers <laughs> who could yeah. dictate who reviews what. If only what there kind. were somebody in charge. <laughs> well, there you go. I if will. If only uh, there were somebody as, as, as I would if I was playing Vampire the Masquerade, I will use my background, no uh, Steven Schleicher, Mm-hmm. to uh, exercise some influence. So, three and a half slices of meatloaf. It's roll, a good comic. Roll, roll a D6 you know, like and let's see how that right? goes. No, it's a D10. It's oh, a sorry, D10. D10. Sorry, I don't he know my Vampire the Masquerade. I do know that if I put my arms above my, my hands, I'm a werewolf. So, there yep, you go. That's, that's exactly right. That's all I know. Your arms above your hands? That sounds painful. Yes. Uh, okay, that are the reviews. Again, as Rodrigo said, make sure you check out the Major Spoilers website for all sorts of other reviews uh, going up every day of the week. We've got some good people out writing uh, some comics, uh, some comic reviews, and uh, you might want to check them out. Now, it's not all the comics out there. I wish we had the funds right now to be able to hire more people to write more reviews so that we could cover more of the comics that you want us to review. Uh, But unfortunately, we're not that we're not there yet. But maybe you can help us out. Maybe a couple of bucks a month. Throw a little our way. Find out more at Patreon.com slash Major Spoilers. All right, everybody. Let us talk about The Fade Out Volume 1 from... Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. I did not intend for these two to line up this week. Uh, I read Pulp last week and I was like, oh my God, I got to talk about this comic because it was so good. And then we get to the Fade Out Volume 1, the first of, I want to say, three volumes in this series because it does follow Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3 as this plays out. This is a noir detective tale. It's not really true detective like uh, actual detectives in the story, uh, but it is a murder mystery where our hero, a, a, a movie writer, wakes up in a, a little cabana and he finds that the star of the movie that he is currently working on has been strangled to death. And he kind of maybe had a thing for her. But then as the uh, story goes on, there's a cover up on her murder. And we start to get an inside look at Hollywood in 1948. And um, as I said earlier, not everyone's an angel. Not everyone is an angel in this book. No, everyone in this book is a jerk. Everyone in this book is a flawed person. And I think if you are someone that liked uh, L.A. Confidential, uh, if you are someone that likes the James Ellroy uh, books, uh, then you're probably going to really get a kick out of this. You probably have already read this book. If you're a fan of L.A. Confidential, Chinatown, um, you know, any of that stuff, uh, Mickey Splain you're probably going to get a kick out of out of this story. Now, there's not a whole lot of setup. I mean, there's a lot of setup in this story. There's not a, resol- a lot of resolution in this story, Rodrigo. Right, right. It's, um, it's really, I mean, what, what's, what's actually pretty impressive about this is that, yeah, this whole volume is the setup to Mm -hmm. what is going to be this ongoing murder mystery uh but it's not like it doesn't have an arc it actually does you are following this writer along as he himself starts to piece together what's happening and by the end um it's not really like oh i figured it out but rather um this is actually much bigger than i expected right and the book gets you there pretty well yeah 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 uh Here's the thing. When you read this book, this is not a book for kids, right? Uh, There's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of sex. uh, There's a lot of violence uh, towards women, especially. 
Uh, and I think what Brubaker and Phillips are doing in this book is they're really trying to give you a snapshot of what uh, late 40s, early 50s Hollywood was like. A lot of the scandals, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, uh, certainly the um, Hollywood 10 and the blacklist uh, starts to show up in here as one of the characters is affected by the blacklist. There's a lot of secret hidden history in here, including as you're reading uh, in in one of the bits. I don't know if it's Clark Gable or, or the other actor, the main actor in the story is, is telling the writer that, Hey, Ronald Reagan is secretly turning people in to the, the HUAC uh, committee and uh, getting people blacklisted. And, you know, it's just a little throw off couple of lines in the book, but that stuff that was actually happening. Uh, Ronald Reagan was actually as the president of the, what is it? The actors guild, uh, Ashley, or was it the MPA? I wasn't the MPA, not at this time, but he was actively turning people in, uh, to HUAC to have them, uh, be listed as communists. And so I believe it was whatever the equivalent of SAG is. I'm not sure if it was called the Screen Actors Guild at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of that kind of uh, Hollywood history going on in this book. And I'm I'm, I'm curious, Ashley, as someone who is an, an, an actor, what mm-hmm. was your take on this inside look at 1940s, 1950s Hollywood? Um, so this is a little tough for me because I don't like stories about Hollywood. Um I don't like move. I don't like like the artists. Like I don't like movies about the movie industry. I I just I don't know. It just always feels weird to me. Um, that being said, it's a really really well plotted volume. Uh, absolutely nothing is resolved, but it is masterfully crafted. Um, I think it's probably a pretty accurate description of what Hollywood was like, both at the time period uh, and now considering Harvey Weinstein Mm -hmm. uh, just recently went to jail. And um, I do admire the fact, though, that it is completely fictionalized. There are a couple very famous figures who are referenced, but this could have easily been a story about Veronica Lake and Clark Mm -hmm. Gable and like whoever, whoever. Um, And I, I do appreciate this. The fun thing about this for me is like the Los Angeles specifics. Like he wakes up in a bungalow in Studio City. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, I know where Studio City is. I used to live in the neighborhood over from Studio City. And they're like, well, Studio City is near a studio, which is mm, not wholly speaking true. Like, there's no major studio in Studio City, but there is in the fictional reality of this book. But I do think because they reference, they do reference the sort of McCarthyism that was going on in the Red Scare. And they do reference... um the changing studio structure. And mm-hmm. that was very much what would have been a miss at the time. So you can definitely tell that this book is incredibly, incredibly well-researched. Yeah. The one of the, one of the key elements in this story is that because the lead actress has been uh, murdered, they have to recast her and basically reshoot half of the film to get this picture out. And they have to get this picture out because one of the elements hanging over the studio is the fact that U S versus Paramount at all of 1947, which demolished the vertical integration of the movie studio system. And then the subsequent Howard Hughes and RKO rolling over and saying, okay, yes, we will sell off our theater chains, which is now forcing all though for real. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. And also selling off, uh, causing all the other studios to have to follow suit is a major plot of this. And, and I think that if you understand a little bit more about what was going on during this time, if you've seen the movie Trumbo, if you've seen, uh, you know, um, really uh, L.A. Confidential has a little bit of this. I'm trying to think of another movie about movies that covers this time period. And I really don't. I, I guess there's a little bit involved. Roger Rabbit. Eh, not. No, that's 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 a little bit earlier. 
Um, but certainly this definitely gives me though the same feelings that um, like a modern equivalent uh, like BoJack Horseman gives me though because yeah. I wonder because if you don't go into it with the no- basic knowledge of uh, the industry and the history, I, I kind of look at it and like it's like it's it's like I said it's really well crafted, it's really well written, the art is beautiful, mm-hmm. the lettering is incredible, like everything about this is like five out of five. Like this is really good comics but there is part of me that went like who is this for right i mean i know there's like eight million people in los angeles but they're not all reading comics no 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 and i don't i I think this really is targeting people who are interested in the the detective uh story the the hard crime because that's what this is this is the hard crime um uh, thriller story uh that's going on uh you know don't expect a happy ending when you get to the end of volume three i can tell you that right now um but you know does the th- everybody die Stephen? <laughs> uh no not everybody dies but not everybody lives and but everyone's it, drunk most of the time everyone is drunk most of the time here's what i'll say is you you said that this is incredibly well written and i and i agree with you um all of the clues you need to figure out the main story and what's going on are here in this first volume. Interesting. Yeah. And once you get to the end, you'll be like, oh, so that's why this person was doing this and this person was doing this. And that's why the old man freaked out when he walked in thinking that he was going to have sex with an actress. That's why that plays a big role in uh, the, the solving of this mystery. And here's how, you know, again, this is based on true story. This is why in the end, um, what's the one with floating in the pool um sunset boulevard right sunset yeah. boulevard. uh there's a there's a very big sunset Vol- Vol- boulevard vibe that runs through this story towards the end interesting yeah 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 uh matthew what'd you think of this of this volume i actually found the sunset boulevard uh reference to be kind of telling because i had just literally just yesterday uh right before i started reading this book finished uh archer dreamland which is set in a similar time frame in a similar city doing some similar stuff. And I really enjoyed that. And I feel like part of my issue with this book is that nobody does noir like Brubaker and Phillips. Nobody can put this stuff together quite the way that they do. So knowing that what it really was going to come down to was my ability to connect to this particular material, whether I could, you know, get a feel for this weird, you know, Hollywood behind the scenes kind of thing. And all of the little bits and pieces feel really neat. They feel really authentic. And yet somehow there's an alienation that I felt throughout this whole volume. I think part of it may be the fact that it is when they say act one, they literally mean act one. This is the first act of the movie or the first act of the television program. And so it's it's setting you up from the beginning if you know the three act structure to go oh right yeah but I didn't necessarily think about that so I was hoping for something not even necessarily resolution but for this to be what felt like an arc of a story where at the beginning this happens doodly 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 do and here's an end point whereas it just sort of feels like it trails off in mid sentence well, and, and, and I will say that that's the unfortunate part about us having to read this one volume at a time or in the way that I originally read it, one issue at a time and completely devoured every issue when it came out. I can't um, imagine reading this issue by issue. It was It's tough, right? Because there were times where it's like, OK, here comes the new issue a month later. Let me sit down and read this. And it's like, oh, yeah. And there was actually a time, I think, when it, we get up to around issues uh, 9, 10 and 11 that I hadn't read it for a couple of months. 
And so when issue 12 came out, I was like, oh man, I've got to go back and read all these things so I can get caught up on it. Because if you don't sit down and read this in one read, it's very easy to forget kind of the, the through storyline and, and who's go, you know, what's going on and the big, there is a big cover up, And that seems to be the thing when we talk about uh, these noir stories is that there is a bigger conspiracy that goes, that goes on. And, you know, we see that in LA Confidential. We see that in a lot of the Elroy uh, books. If you want to, if you are someone that loves LA, LA crime, go and read his, uh, what is it called? The, the trilogy of books that he has read. I read um, The Storm last summer and it was like, Matthew was aghast at one of the books I'm reading right now that's 60 hours long. This book felt like it was 120 hours long uh, to get through it because he just goes into the minutia of everything going on in L.A., during the world war two times. And it's, and it's crazy. Um, fortunately you don't have to go through that here, but there is a lot of, you know, I think the history here is, is really nice. Um, I really think people ought to read this in the collected trade, the omnibus. Uh, I rarely ask for comics for presents, but a couple of Christmases ago when the omnibus of this came out, that was the one gift that I asked for, for the entire of Christmas was that I would really like this because I find the art fascinating. I find the story fascinating. And that was the one gift that I got that Christmas was uh, the omnibus collection of, of the fade out uh, because it's, I think it's a really good story personally. Um, I can see where, and then I'm getting the hint from a couple of you that when this ends at the end of act one, you there's kind of a little bit of a letdown because you wanted some kind of resolution. But as Matthew pointed out, this is following a three act structure, the beginning, the middle and the end. And by the end of act one, the actor or the, uh, the not the actor, the, 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 the main character should have found his first major hurdle and realized that he has to cross that threshold into something bigger and scarier. And he does when uh, this place where potentially he has his first major clue is burned to the ground and he has to figure out, OK, how do I deal with this uh, going forward? Uh, so that's what I think is is interesting about this. Um, Ashley, you said you like the writing, you like the art. Was there something in this that you did not care for? I mean, there's a I, lot of violence like against said, women I, in this. Yeah, so. I, I just don't particularly care for stories about Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, even though I, I completely understand that this is at the top of its game. Um, but part of me was like, I wish we'd read any other Brubaker and Phillips yeah, yeah, yeah. noir than this one. And it's I think it's just because like I am so mired in it that I'm like, I don't I don't want to read about, you know, it's like when you, sometimes it's how you feel about comics. You're like, I just have to go read like a real dry biography or mm -hmm. piece of historical nonfiction just to like scrub my brain of it. Yeah. Um, so just like in general, the setting is not something that I would necessarily choose to immerse myself in it. And, uh, you know, if there's going to be that many naked women, I would like to see at least one naked man. In comparison. I think there now, is a, there is a, I really respect about Sunstone is there's a lot of naked yes. women in that series, and, and a but lot there's of men also too. a lot of naked men, you know, and it shouldn't have to be a point system, but it kind of has to be a point system. I, th I think in one panel, there's like half of a wiener that makes an appearance. Yeah, it, it very heavily because, uh, and I can't me, tell you what, where the, <laughs> I could tell you where the other half of the wiener is, but this is a, you know, somewhat fa family friendly uh, podcast. So I, I do. I do, though, appreciate um, not shying away from the violence at the mm -hmm. time, because that was a real that was a reality. Um, the same thing with the treatment of uh, the African-American character who we right. see uh, at the party. So I do appreciate the dedication to how it would have been at the time, but it doesn't necessarily like soften the blow of being like, cool, uh -huh. more titties. Great. Yeah. There, there is a, there is a lot of, there's a lot of breasts bouncing around in this, in this. Yeah. Rodrigo, are there some things you didn't like about this book or, or did you just like it top to bottom? 
no, I'm in a I'm in a similar place as Ashley in that I uh, wanted to see more wieners. No, in that <laughs> I uh, this isn't this isn't the subject matter that really interests me. Right. So it's it's really a this is this is like a backhanded compliment because even though I kind of don't care about what was going on in Hollywood and the studio system and stuff, except from like a historical standpoint and mm-hmm. why that's important for modern movies. Mm-hmm. Um, this is such a like kind of carefully and well carried mystery that it kept me interested the whole time. Like I was literally flipping through this and being amazed at myself that I had that my brain hadn't wandered away. Um, and it's a fairly like it quick usually read. does when I'm reading any given trade, right? Yeah, At some a, point, I'm like, okay, too much information, regardless of what's happening. I need to go and like eat an apple or something. Yeah. Uh, but I, that took surprisingly long when I was reading this book. Yeah. And it, like I said, it's a fairly quick read. There's only four issues, I think, in this volume. Or maybe it's only three issues in this volume. But, uh, but uh, you know, it's it, like you said, it is a fairly, fairly quick read in that. Matthew, what about you? I feel like I appreciate it for for the artistry of it without actually ever being dragged into it. Um, I feel like, for me, th- and this is telling, the moment that really got the most emotional baggage or, or response, I guess, for lack of a better word for me, is near the end, and I don't actually understand it, but uh, where Dottie, the publicity girl, is crying in another room about something that I don't think they've told us yet. Yeah, they've they told you uh, she and the writer used to be married. And She's awesome, by yes. the way. Yeah. Dottie's yes. amazing. And, and she wants to get back crying to, about something. And I'm like, yeah, Aw. she wants to get back with her with her husband, boyfriend, whatever. And uh, and uh, she said the wrong thing because he's like, oh, I didn't know this was a date. And of course, she said, oh, of course, I was just joking. This was not really a date. And so she's upset about that. But yeah, she's got, she's got this, uh, unrequited love for our hero. Ah, well, I didn't get that at all. Yeah. You gotta go back and read it. It's there subtly as you, as you see the, the characters, um, talking about their past and you see how the characters are interacting with one another in the past, even when there's no, um, dialogue, uh, going on, uh, just the appearance of those characters, uh, kind of let you in on, on what's going on with the back part of that story. I do always, I do always get kind of it always cracks me up when i'm reading a story um and like every lady is kind of into the main character who's an author <laughs> yeah 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 or who's a writer yeah, right and that's, i just hmm. i just kind of get this moment it's like you see I, I feel like you see it in like stephen king stuff a lot of the time too mm-hmm. where it's like it's like, I'm very tortured. It's like, oh, what do you do? I'm a writer. It's like, yeah. oh, oh, wow. And that's, and <laughs> that's probably kind of the weird thing about this book in that our, he's a writer. He's a writer of the movie. He's the lead writer on this movie. And yet he's friends with Clark Gable. He's friends with the, uh, the, the main actor in the movie. He was having a flirtatious relationship with uh, Val, the actress who is murdered uh, in, in this piece. Um, you know, he kind of knows everybody and he's kind of well-respected. And I don't know if that's, Personally, I don't know if that's how it was in Hollywood at the time. I, you know, uh, you can go back and watch the Trumbo movie and kind of get an idea for, you know, how the writer was treated. But you're right. He does seem to be, you know, everybody knows him and everybody loves him. And yet, uh, you know, people on the street don't recognize him and he doesn't get his pictures in the papers and everything. So that's that's one one of the weird things. But then as you 
learned that he was part of the team that went to uh, World War II with Clark Gable to go and do documentary stuff. And the one thing that I have never gone to to track down, um, the the writer in the in the story, uh, the, the lead character talks about how he and Clark Gable went to Europe to do documentary series and they were on B-17 bombers. I don't know if if Ed Brubaker is referencing the Memphis Bell documentary, which if you've never seen not the Memphis Bell movie about the incident, but if you've ever seen the Memphis Bell movie. Uh, the documentary about the the final flight of that B-17 bomber. It is horrifying and it is it is shaking. And I can't help but wonder if that's what Ed Brubaker is referencing when they when they talk about that. Uh, so that that's something to to think about. But, yeah, I agree with you, Rodrigo, that it's it's really weird that the writer knows everybody and the actresses are in love with him and the head of the PR department is in love with him and all these kinds of things. And, and you know, it's not it's not compl- like, again, this is well written. So it's not completely crazy. He has this history, mm-hmm. both with the studio, with Clark Gable. People are surprised that he knows Clark Gable so well. Mm-hmm. It's well carried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does crack me up anytime. Like there's anytime there's like a very highly desirable writer character. I'm just like, hmm, 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 hmm. So here is the thing that is missing from this volume that I can't remember if it is in the omnibus or not. Um, but I found it very valuable in giving you a little bit more history of the time period. Uh, when this book came out, obviously, uh, the first page is that credits page that has everybody's pictures of who's who in this. And then there, and that's basically a two page splash, which meant, meant when this released, they were basically a page shorter. They needed an extra page of content. And Ed Brubaker went in and he uses a two page to write prose about different characters. Uh, from real Hollywood. So basically he's telling you, here's the life story of this actress who was so distraught because she didn't get this role that she ended up jumping off the top of the Hollywood land sign and killing herself. And this is, this is a tragedy of what happens at this time. I believe there's also uh, a um, Betty, Betty Davis story that's in there. I want to say that there is a Jimmy Grant story. Yeah. Jimmy Grant story, a Cary Grant story that's in there. Um, but I found that those additional stories that Brubaker added to say, you know, I'm just not making all this up. Here are the real stories and here are real things that happened to stars in Hollywood at this time made the book feel even more real than it already felt. And I know, Ashley, like you said, you're not a big fan of that, of that, uh, that type of storytelling, but I, but I find that the, those missing pages in this volume is probably the biggest letdown to me because. I normally am not someone who wants to read pages and pages and pages of prose text uh, in my comic books, but I found myself every month when these these books came out flipping to the back to see what star or starlet or lost person to uh, history and time that we haven't forgotten about. Who is he talking about this time to give these people a little bit more life? So if you can track those those down, it is a it is a perfect compliment to this book. Okay. Uh, so, uh, any other thoughts, reactions, anything else, anybody wanted to share or is every, is everybody kind of, uh, played out for the first volume? I mean, I will say that even though, uh, at first glance, it's not necessarily my jam. I am looking forward to reading more. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, all right. Kind of the same way. So what is Ashley, what is your final thought and recommendation on this? 
Man, if you like uh, truly anything, any aspect of what we've discussed today, whether that's naked ladies, parts of a wiener, uh, old Hollywood, <laughs> noir, Brubaker Phillips, it's this is definitely worth picking up. Uh, and there is a reason that Brubaker and Phillips enjoy one of the only exclusives at Image Comics for their work mm-hmm. on these stories. What is it they have a t- is it a 10 year deal or a 10 book deal that they have? Look, forget- either way, it's the best deal out there right yeah. now. Oh yeah, it's, we it's, should all be it's so really freaking good. lucky. Yeah, yeah, this uh at the time, I don't know currently, but at the time when this book was coming out, there were a number of people who were courting Brew Baker and Phillips to buy the movie rights to this, and he yeah. said that he was not going to sell the movie rights until the entire series was done because he didn't want to have the movie influence what he was thinking of. When he was writing the book, I don't know if that's changed. I didn't really follow up and find anything else about that. But I do know that uh, people were courting this because, again, I keep making comparisons to L.A. Confidential. But by the time we're done with these three volumes and if you've seen L.A. Confidential, you'll say, yeah, there's a lot of parallels between this. L.A. Confidential got a lot of people some Oscars and made a lot of people famous. And so I think studios are are looking at this in the same way. Uh, Matthew, what are your final thoughts on this? For me, it's a story that I cannot deny the craft in and that I cannot, you know, say has huge faults, but just didn't really appeal to me. And I don't know, maybe it's just me. There's a certain point with certain artists where you're like, he does this incredibly. He does this really well. This is something that nobody can do as well as Sean Phillips. And the problem with Sean Phillips for me is that I have never, ever looked at a Sean Phillips drawing of a naked lady and gone, Oh yeah, that's how naked ladies work. And that's not even being, I'm I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be snotty. It's just one of those moments where you're just like, no, that doesn't work for me. And it kind of causes a disconnect. And I think part of that, you know, comes from there is misogyny in this story. There is racism. There is very much a, a 1948 sort of steeping through all of it. And if that's something that's going to bother you, I think as it did me, It's something you'll want to be aware of before you pick this up. I would say if you want to read this, my recommendation would be to buy it in a bigger chunk. If there's like an absolute edition. Yeah, there's there's like the omnibus edition and then there's the three volume set. I would be confident at this point, having only read the first act, that buying all three will be the more satisfying reading experience. Even if the whole thing were to fly off the rails and the hubcaps come off and everything crash into the dust at the end, simply because of the, the vague disappointment that I had at getting to the end of this chapter and having that. Oh, Rodrigo final thoughts from you. Um, this is a good example of how you actually can just write, kind of genre like fiction in a specific genre you don't have to like do anything new right it's like what's the pitch for this it's like writer finds dead starlet unravels mystery like it, it there's no space aliens there's no like it's die hard but in a movie studio it's not it's just that and as long as you write it well it's perfectly compelling right and i found i found myself compelled so i would say if you're into noir stuff or if you're into old hollywood stuff definitely go out and get this yeah i i really recommend this a lot this is a this is a favorite of mine i rarely go to gaga over a book but this is one that i'm just totally in love with this story from start to finish uh just because of the history 
the the mystery, the noir feel for everything. It, it's and I and I've talked about before how I'm not uh, you know capes and tights are great, but comics is oftentimes a lot more than capes and tights, and this is definitely not capes and tights. Uh, and I do believe it is worth checking out. Although that being said. Anytime you can get your hands on any Ed Brubaker or Sean Phillips works, they're all worth it, whether it be crime drama, whether it be pulp, uh, whether it be uh, whether it be, uh, you know, this this noir thriller or whether it be their weird Cthulhu thing that they did with Fatal um, just prior to this one. Uh, it's always worth checking out for me. So there you go. It's up to you if you want to go and uh, borrow this book, buy it. Uh, there is a link, an affiliate link to our Amazon page. Uh, in the uh, show notes, we certainly appreciate everyone who does that. Also, you will find links to Comicsology over at Majorspoilers.com. When you click on that, those are also affiliate links. If you decide to click on the uh, Comicsology app and then buy the fade out of uh, volume one, two and three uh, through there, uh, a little bit comes back our way and keeps everything going here at Major Spoilers. And so with that being said, I think that is where we are going to wrap it up for this issue. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the Major Spoilers experience. As always, we want to hear your feedback. If you've got something to say about this show or what we had to say about this book, use the comments section of Major Spoilers to share your thoughts and reactions to this episode. Or even better, you can send us an email to podcast.majorspoilers.com. And don't forget, you can support this show and everything we do by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Majorspoilers. We will be back next week. We're going to do European comics next week. So definitely not capes and tights, but it might definitely be something completely different. Oh, we're going to check that out next week. Why? Because we know that you love comics and we do too. And we will talk with you soon. Fat Dick's revision of Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, he kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler If I'm star raving rich like a man of iron I might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline Would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fine Be in the Middle East With a king sign throwing soldier what a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler Whoa, 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 whoa What a major spoiler This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.